You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, thank you so much for being part of our show. We hope you like what we're doing here. Make sure you guys follow us on all of our social media sites, Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast. We're on Instagram at Hazard Ground Podcast and on Twitter at Hazard Ground. And this week's guest, once again, steps us outside the realm of our normal kind of guests where we get a military member to tell their story. We're stepping outside those bounds and actually getting a freelance photographer who has covered the Iraq and Afghanistan wars through the eyes of a camera lens. His name is Peter Van Ochtmel, and again, he's a freelance photographer, primarily working now with the New York Times, Time Magazine, and the New Yorkers, where you can find most of his work. He also has his own personal website, and he joins us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Peter, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Glad to be here. We start this podcast by asking how people got into the military. Since you're not in the military, we'll ask you, how did you get into photography? Because it's not something that a lot of people venture into. Yeah, well, in in a in a way, uh, those things are, are probably intertwined. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, like like most kids of my generation, I'm 36 now. I had a grandfather that served in uh, in the army in World War II, and uh, was in Europe uh, from just after D-Day till the till the close of the war. And, and he and I were always very close. And his military service was was a huge part of his identity. And uh, and from an early age, he kind of steeped me in the, the, the stories of, of what he'd experienced over there. And it mostly was kind of, frankly, the, the, the brighter side of it, you know, the, the camaraderie and the, and the pride and the adventure and, and things like that. Not, not so much about the brutality and the, and the violence and the, and the sadness of it. But, um, but it, it, it sunk its teeth into me somehow that I always... And from an early age, I developed a strong interest in, in, in World War II and then expanding beyond that into, into sort of the history of conflict, especially America's history of conflict. And, and, uh, but, but I can't say I was ever temperamentally suited, particularly for, for joining the military. So it wasn't something I really strongly considered. But when, when uh, September 11th happened and then the invasion of Iraq, I was, I had, I was in university and I had an interest in in photography at that point and an interest in journalism and kind of the, the, you know, the wars of, of my generation of, of our generation really were intersecting with that interest in, in photography and journalism. So, so in my early twenties, I kind of resolved to, to start covering those conflicts and, 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 and began really in, yeah, in January, 2006 and, you know, continuing to this day. I mean, I was last in Mosul just a couple months ago. Wow. Interesting. So, uh, when you begin your photography career, were you always intending to shoot military style stuff? I mean, or, or how did you develop your photography style? I should say. Well, it was sort of a combination of things. Definitely, covering the conflicts was was something that was important to me from the uh, the very beginning. Uh, but simultaneously, you know, I studied. I was studying history at, at Yale, and Yale has a very strong uh, art school. And so I was taking that interest in photography into the art department and, and they, uh, and, and, and through the art school there, it showed me kind of a broader vision of looking at it, it, the world around me, not so, uh, narrowly focused on kind of the, the sort of oftentimes kind of two dimensional emotions that war photography often has, which generally tends to focus on just the, 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 the violence and kind of the horror of it. But, but, uh, 
the, the school there kind of focused on looking at photography, you know, really holistically looking at on kind of every, every term of, of emotion and beauty and, and how all those things kind of complement one another and in many ways contradict one another. So those were lessons well learned when I ended up in, in, in Iraq in 2006, because it, it, uh, you know, uh, war was, it was far more complex than kind of the vision that I, that I'd largely been seeing up until that point. And, did you ask to go to Iraq in 2006? Like, did you ask or you went on your own or how did you end up there? Yeah, when I was 24 and, and I'd only really been working as a photographer professionally for about a year. Uh, so I didn't have any clients that would send me there. You know, they're, they're generally magazines are wary about about kind of giving really kids without any experience their start in a situation like that. They just don't want to take responsibility for it. So I, uh, uh, but I, I had a strong kind of passion for going and I'd, I'd spent the previous few years trying to kind of work my way up to it. You know, I don't have military training, but you know, you have the, the training of journalism, which you can kind of steadily, you know, test your limits and, and, uh, and your kind of threshold for, for fear and uncertainty with the, the real world. So I tried to do that really kind of methodically uh, in the, in the years after I graduated college. And at some point I just felt prepared and I, I sent an email to uh public affairs officer in uh, in Iraq, uh, in CPIC. And, uh, and, and about a week later, you know, I had approval to join a, join a unit up in, in Mosul. Uh, so I went in there in January, 2006 and spent two months with the 172nd striker brigade. I was there actually at the same time. So when you contacted army public affairs and, and they got back to you, did they pay for your flight over there? You had to pay out of pocket. Mm, well, I had to pay for the flight to Kuwait, which was right. know, about a thousand dollars round trip. But then, but then they then they flew me out there. Sure, uh, yeah, okay. I w- was in uh, Ali Al Salim, you know that big tent yep. city. Yep. And then they flew me out there. And then you know, I just uh, when you're embedded, I don't know if you had embedded photographers or journalists with you. You know, you're you know you're you're staying with the unit, and so you're just eating at the defac and and uh, going along with them on on patrols and missions, and and so. You know, for two months, really, my only expense was uh, was cigarettes, really. Yeah, well, and and so tell me about that experience from your standpoint. I mean, what were your preconceived thoughts and expectations going into being with a unit day in and day out? And how much contact did you expect to see? I mean, give me kind of the rundown of what you thought going in and then what actually happened. Um. You know, I I tried to prepare myself so thoroughly and kind of unsentimentally almost as to what I was going to experience, you know, I'd steep myself in both, you know, what had been written about the war in long form and short form in the previous years, the photography that had been done about the war, the photography had specifically been done on embed in that particular uh, area of operations. And so, I, I, you know, I had a surface view that was, that I thought was pretty accurate. Um, but at the same time, you know, you never know who you're going to be and how you're going to act when you're confronted with it, you know, in reality. And, and of course, what I was, you know, what I started seeing for myself had things in common with what I think other journalists and photographers have seen. But, but you know, they, uh, you know, I, I tried to really be as open as possible and not have any preconceptions and 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 see it, you know, with with the with the uniqueness of the individual experience, which 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 I which hopefully I did. I mean, unfortunately. You know, when you're young, at least when I was young, it's 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 easy to be, uh, a, you know, not a slave to tra- tradition, but beholden to tradition and what you think is the expectations of the media 
and it took some time to kind of unwind those lessons a little bit too. Uh, many of them were valuable ones about how to kind of conduct myself and how to look and, and, and what to say. But, but in the end, it, it was a, a very personal journey too. So the first time you're out with a unit and you get into contact with an enemy, uh, what were your thoughts and feelings and, and how do you clear those out to actually do the job that you have to do? Well, I think, you know, maybe this has some overlap with, with what it is to, to go through training as a soldier at a certain point, you know, you know, as a photographer, you have a job to do out there too. And, and that job is part technical and it's part, you know, emotional and it's part intellectual in a way, but, but it's, it's, it, it, it relies on the precision that you're so mindful of your surroundings and every second and how this each second alters the scene you may be seeing that, uh, you know, there was, there wasn't too much time to think about what it was that I was experiencing. You know, the, the, the animal instincts take over to, you know, primarily make sure that I was trying to be as safe as possible under the circumstances and not endanger anyone I was with, of course. And then secondarily to, to take pictures that were, that kind of powerfully represented those, the scenes that I was seeing. And so between those two things, you know, there was, uh, not, not a lot of time for, uh, for kind of, fear trepidation you know fortunately you know with 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 me always uh i've always felt in a weird way very comfortable operating in conflict areas because you have to be so focused and it's the, the fear kind of kicks in uh, after i get back when i kind of reflect on what i saw in the, in the pictures and, and in my memories I know you mentioned that, you know, the part of the war that's easy to photograph is all the destruction and all the death and everything else. And there is another side to that that often doesn't get told. Uh, when you think back on your experience in doing war photography, did you come across anything that you thought, you know, was, look, I, I, you know, this is a moment or whatever that I don't need to photograph or this just kind of needs to be where it is and it doesn't need to be captured on camera? You know, not not too much. Um there were a few times I didn't take pictures, partly because I was sometimes so sh so surprised or shocked that it took a minute to register that I should be taking pictures. But but generally, I've I've tried not to ever censor myself, but not to be casual about what I put out into the world either. To to really spend a lot of time with the work afterwards, reflecting on it. And generally, I'm working for weekly magazines whose deadlines are are oftentimes weeks or even months after I take the pictures. So I'm allowed that kind of space for, for reflection and, and, and the editors I work with are very open to, you know, to a dialogue about, about what is appropriate for my experience in representing the subject. You know, I, I you know, I, I take my responsibilities as a journalist seriously. I don't want to sensationalize for the sake of melodrama. You know, I want it to be something that, that, that is unsparing, but also, you know, uh, uh, that a lot of points of reference can find relatable and, and, and sincere to their own experiences. So, and that's a hard balance, of course, to, to find, you know, between, you know, uh, uh, you know, what, what one's personal truth is and what, a, what a, a more objective truth might be, you know, that's, that's a constant struggle and a constant thought process over the years. No, I, I certainly understand where you're going with that. Uh, some of the moments you said where you were surprised or shocked, can you talk about those experiences that do, do what sticks out to you about them that you remember that says, well, Oh my God, I should be taking pictures of this. And um, I was, the two ones I remember the most were both from my, uh, from the first embed I did um, where I was really still learning the ropes in a lot of ways and trying to figure out 
you know, what, what my own perspective really was. Uh, and I, and I remember the first one was, um, this time when a chaplain, uh, the, the chaplains in the unit came out on patrol and, uh, we were passing through a graveyard and he, uh, he took a piss in the graveyard, um, in full view of a lot of the Iraqis and, uh, and then kind of made a glib remark afterwards and called it this holy piss, you know, and, uh, and I could just, and I was, you know, frankly, a little shocked and outraged and someone who was kind of a religious figure, you know, representing, uh, the military and representing, you know, Christianity was, was, was urinating in a graveyard, uh, in, uh, in full view of people. So, uh, and I, and I, but I was so surprised at the time somehow I just didn't photograph it. And I wish I had afterwards because it was a powerful moment. Of course, it's also a moment that, you know, uh, could be easily misused, powerful to document, probably powerful to, to, and a powerfully resonant scene. And in some ways, a symbol of some of the miscalculations of these, this conflict, but at the same time could easily be used as propaganda. So it's one of those things where I regret not taking it. And at the same time, maybe feel a little bit of relief. Um, and the other one was kind of a similar situation where it was, uh, you know, this is what the photographer sees. And, and I, you know, I'm sure you're, you're, it might be interesting for you or your, your military listeners from the other side. You know, there was a moment where a, uh, a young uh, Iraqi policeman who was off duty had been, been uh, shot in the middle of the street. And I was with the unit. We found his body it, right after it happened. We'd heard the shots, found his body on the street, his, um, his, uh, you know, his parents were coming out there and at the moment discovering his body and grieving over it. I mean, it was a terrible scene and, and the, and the soldiers I was with were very upset about it. And they were just kind of grabbing anybody in sight. that was a young man and, and, and roughing them, them up pretty aggressively. And, uh, at the time I didn't photograph it because I was also sort of outraged by the, this cold blooded assassination, um, and, and sympathetic, you know, to the, to the soldiers I was with. So I, I, you know, I, w- I restrained myself from photographing those scenes again, fearing if they were taken out of context, they could be misused. And now, you know, again, I don't know what I would do with those pictures. I have many more scenes like it, but I would, I would certainly try and take the photographs and then sort it out later. You know, that's generally my attitude. That, you know, I almost don't. I, ch- I trust, I trust my thoughts on reflection. I don't always trust my instincts at the time. So I just try and push myself to instinctually respond first and, and ask the questions later. I mean, I think anybody listening to this podcast who has any knowledge of the, the Iraq war, with those two instances you discussed, had those photographs been released, it would have been extremely damaging, um, not only to the individuals, but to the army and the mission and everything as a whole. Um, and, and discretion being the better part of valor, you know, obviously it didn't work out that you didn't snap those photos. But, you, you know, when you hear those stories, it's part of me is disheartened because we had people who acted that way. And, and, you know, there, there are fellow people who put on a uniform like me that should hold themselves in a higher regard and did not. And they're supposed to make better decisions in those moments and did not. Um, but in the same respect, you know, if some of the photographs, obviously, you know, we go back to reference Abu Ghraib and everything that happened there. If those photographs don't come to light, you know, the, the power of those images um, obviously changes things. So when you when you think back and you reflect on that, and as you know, you kind of touched on it a little bit, the effect that they could have, um, you know, what what is your feeling on kind of uh, your ability or a photographer's ability to to have affected the war in general and po- foreign policy and how we react and react and everything else? 
Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the really complicated million dollar question. You know, I, I just am wrapping up watching the Ken Burns Vietnam War series. I don't know if you've been watching yes. it, but uh, you know, which is a you know extre- you know extremely interesting, powerful experience to me. Photography plays a prominent role in that. Photography, in many ways, played a p- prominent role in uh, uh, in in that conflict and altering uh, perceptions of the conflict. Um, but uh, you know, what the narrative is within photography is pictures like you know from the Tet Offensive, the execution of the the, the Viet Cong uh, um, member and and the young girl uh, who'd been burned by napalm running down this running down the road, both of which won Pulitzer Prizes. You know, those are seen as altering perceptions towards the war. In many ways, you know, my feeling is they just they just kind of became symbols of the war at that point. You know, there are many other powerful pictures, even more powerful than those taken at different times that resonated in different ways. What's interesting about the Iraq war and the Afghan war is you mentioned Abu Ghraib is that actually in a lot of ways, the most resonant pictures were not taken by professional photojournalists, right, yeah. but, but, but taken by the soldiers uh, themselves and, 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 and ended up being, you know, leaked, leaked to the press. And, and I always found that interesting because the role of photography in society also changes over time. And, uh, you know, I, I, have a, I have a head full of iconic images taken by my colleagues, but, the, but they don't have, have that kind of popular recognition in the same way. So, but this is all to say that, that, that photography, you know, plays, plays a complex role and, and, it's, and it's important to try and be really thoughtful and responsible about it. Um, but you also never quite know how people, what's going to happen and how people are going to respond. I mean, that's the mystery almost of, of, of the public and, and, and the, and the, and the flow of these wars and the shape they've taken over the years. And, and so, so you can be responsible, but it's also a leap of faith. You mentioned about some of the photographs you missed that stick out. Uh, what are the photographs that you got uh, that you that you can remember? Uh, describe the photos and the circumstances around them. I, I, we'll give everybody a chance to go to your website and we'll tell them about it before we're done here. But you know, some of those pictures may be up there. But I kind of want your perspective on some of the photos that you took that stand out to you. Yeah, I mean, at d- different time, different things at different times. I mean, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I've been covering these conflicts at war, you know, in the conflicts and at home now for almost 12 years, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, from the perspective of and in the U.S. and and in the countries surrounding these places. I mean, the the the, the kind of concentric, expanding concentric circles of these wars have been have been vast, and and this moment in our in our history, um, you know. Also, some pictures are embedded. I've worked a lot unembedded as well, so it's, it's, I've, I've tried to, to look at these, look at this from many, many different angles. You know, most recently, you know, I would say the most memorable picture I took was in April, in Mosul, and it was for a, this story for the New York Times Magazine about about the, the battle there. And uh, I was at a hospital, and uh, there was a, a man. Uh, in his mid-50s, who looked like he was about in his mid-70s. He came in with bandages over both his eyes. And, uh, and he, got, he had a scan that, that, that revealed that he was never going to get his eyesight back. And he went out with his son afterwards, and he just sat down on this chair um, in the darkness with just a little bit of light kind of illuminating his face. And I just, he just sat there with his hands and his beard kind of like, you know, digging scratching deeply into his face you know with these with these bandage covered eyes and that that was very 
you know, that was a very emotional moment. I spent a long time kind of watching it. And then I, then I approached the son and, and kind of, and, and the man and got their consent. And I just, you know, that, that image has stuck with me for, for a long time. You know, there are other things too. I mean, the earliest memory, if I think of the earliest memory that stuck with me, it was, uh, was, was, uh, of, of watching a young man, young American, uh, soldier, uh, become the burns, you know, he'd, ID had hit his, uh, Bradley. Um, he had burns over 90% of his body, you know, his, his skin was coming off, you know, it was, uh, mottled, mottled, uh, red and black and, you know, and I, and I remember him calling out for his, for his father over and over again. And, uh, you know, the memory of that scene and of, of his voice, you know, I couldn't, it took years till I, till it wasn't at the top of my consciousness, you know, and I don't, you know, it's funny why some memories stick and others don't. I've seen a lot of people injured. I've seen a lot of people die at this point. And, and that one, for whatever reason, or these two stories, you know, they, they, they resonate more than, than most. It's hard, hard to say why. Sometimes even the pictures aren't the best pictures, but, but the memories imprint themselves real strongly. I mean, you tell a, a fantastic story there, and, and the visual is, you know, unfortunately, as, as you know, jarring as that visual is, you, you, you certainly give it a give it life. And and I wonder, at what point for you, is it too much for somebody who's not in that environment? Like, you know, after years of doing this and multiple deployments and everything, you, you know, I, I've just kind of learned that the nature of war is what it is. Uh, even at that. There are times where even I have to turn away and go, this is too much. Like, you know, I need a break mentally from all this stuff. But as a civilian who doesn't live in that environment every day, did you ever get to that point where you saw enough death and destruction, you saw enough depravity that you said, look, I did that, you know, I just need to get away from this? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it comes in in waves. You know, this trip to Mosul was more of an exception rather than the rule. Uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm not the same at 36 as I was when I was 24. I don't I have a different threshold towards ri the risks I'm willing to take. I and I have less of a threshold for for witnessing such horrible pain and suffering, frankly. And and at the same time, you know, th this work has dominated my life for so long. And as these things continue to say, okay, I'm done. And, and I want to turn my, you know, I need to turn my back on this. It's, it's very difficult me, for me to break away on, on something that's become really in many ways, a defining characteristic of my life. So I'm trying to keep at it, to keep at it in more moderated terms and do a lot of other work and invest more in, you know, friendships and relationships and family in a way I didn't when I was younger. And, and more hungry for, you know, adventure and, and ambition and all these sort of, you know, things that young men feel in a way that when you get a little older, you don't feel quite as much or other things take priority. So, and, you know, and, and including, you know, going, going to therapy when it's needed, because sometimes when memories linger, you know, it's, uh, uh, you got to find a way to talk them through and, and, and hope they, they start to diminish because, you know, I want to, you know, I want to keep documenting what's happened for, for a long time. I mean, the story will go on for the rest of our lives in some form or another. And I, and I want to, you know, have the strength to keep doing it. So that means really moderating, uh, moderating my emotions and being very aware of them too, and not trying to bury them. When you look at your experience as a photographer overseas, you know, how do you characterize it? Like what stands out to you? And, and um, is there anything you regret about the job that you've done? 
No, I mean, I don't have too many regrets. I mean, I don't think I've sat still enough for long enough to really let those regrets maybe bubble to the surface. I'm sure they're there. I just wouldn't even be answered right now. You know, if there's anything I sort of regret not starting with sooner, you know, the first years, the first sort of five years I was doing this work, I focused almost exclusively on, on really the American perspective uh, of these wars. And uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and at home, too. I've told a lot of stories of veterans and their families at home. Um, but but when, you, when you're focusing in that, it's, it's also missing, you know, an important other part of the, the conflict, you know, the critical other part of the conflict, which is the Iraqi and Afghan experience. And I didn't feel confident or well-suited towards it before and didn't really think much of it. But, but as I started to, to get into it and, and find myself very... Uh, Making, making friends with Iraqis and Afghans uh, and, and getting kind of steeped in, in, in Arab culture uh, and, and starting to also work as an educator out in the Middle East as well, teaching young Arab documentary photography, photographers. You know, I started to feel some regret that I didn't start in that process earlier to try and cover the, the, these conflicts on as many terms as possible from all sides. But, you know, that's really been the focus of my work for the last five years. So, you know, I've, I've I've made up made up for it, I think. Although, of course, I also continue to photograph the American perspective on the wars, and even on this last trip to Mosul, you know, did an embed with the uh, the eighty second Airborne who was out there. That, that, that's a real poignant thought, um, and, and it only reminds me of my experience during my first deployment. You know, I, I can remember thinking towards the end uh, about how many because I was working with an Iraqi unit during my entire first deployment, training them and everything else. And we did, you know, I did this for over a year, day in and day out. I woke up and there was an Iraqi right to my left and right to my right and an interpreter somewhere around. And I just remember thinking when I left the other side of this whole thing, I was so excited to go home, but I couldn't help but feel that I was leaving a big part of my life behind. And and, and it was the people in Iraq that I was leaving behind. It was, it was the, the bonds and the, the for the best word I can use is friendship uh, with the people who fought alongside me. And some of those guys saved my life. I mean, I wouldn't even be sitting here talking to you without some of those soldiers that I trained who, you know, uh, managed to save my life at one point. So uh, that is just, a, it's an incredible thought that I don't think we spend enough time in. And, and uh, maybe it's because we're so, you know, soldiers as military guys, we're so concerned with the job and the mission and the focus and the task and all that stuff. But uh, I think that's, you know, well said about the other side of this whole thing that we don't give a lot of credence to. Yeah, a lot of innocent people have been, you know, have been killed, been injured, had their lives profoundly upended, and and uh, and 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 I also I fault the media some a lot of the time for not giving that enough attention. You know, I fault our politicians and uh, for sometimes creating a, a dehumanization, a dehumanizing atmosphere towards towards uh, Arab and, and and especially Muslim culture. You know, I've, you know, I felt pop culture in Hollywood for kind of ignoring these, these stories as well. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I find it, I find it deeply troubling because, you know, we have a very, I think, skewed perception in this country of, of who it is we're there to, to fight on behalf of, or at least, you know, that's what we tell ourselves. And, and, and we've barely taken the time to, to understand what it is and, and who they are. And, and that, and that bothers me. I mean, these, you know, my, my partner, my, my romantic partner and sometimes professional partner is a Syrian American. And, and so, you know, whose whole, whose whole life has been in many ways now defined by that conflict. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I have, you know, the intimacy of friendship, the intimacy of love with, with, with that culture and, and have fallen in love with it myself. And it does, it, 
it troubles me deeply more than anything, you know, how, how ignorant we remain to it. And you know, and you know how it is having, having served with them, you know, it's, they probably, probably was very different than what you would have expected in a lot of ways. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it, they, they've surprised me at every turn. I do remember that. I mean, there are certain things that are dynamically different about, you know, Iraqis and, and Middle Eastern and Muslim cultures that, that'll never be like America. And that's not a bad thing. It's just flat out different. It's the only way to say it. Um, but you know, there are some things that I was certainly taken aback by and the, the, the love and admiration and respect they gained from me was equal on the other end. Uh, and I think that just comes from being service members, you know, and, and the bonds you share together and what you have to go through side by side every day just to stay alive. And, you know, that, that I think is something that never breaks and it never fails. And, and I, I feel that way about my American soldiers, but I also feel that way about the same Iraqi soldiers that I have memories of. And I'll never likely cross paths with those guys again, but that, that memory stays strong and that bond stays strong within me. Um, I, I want to turn to a little bit of a, uh, you mentioned ignorance and what I found on your website, I thought, you know, uh, is probably the best word to use it uh, because it's not pleasant, but uh, you have a section on your website titled War Graffiti. And when I started flipping through it, I knew exactly what it was. Uh, and this is basically um, inner musings of soldiers in a porta potty. Uh, and this is where all this, they, they, for whatever reason, I've never understood this, but uh, inside the porta potties that are all over these foreign countries where we're, we were camped out doing our job, for some reason, people take out a pen, a marker, whatever it is, and and write down their thoughts and pictures and everything else. And let's just be honest about this, Peter, because you've seen it yourself and photographed it. Some of it's bile. It's disgusting. Uh, it's, it's, they're racial slurs, homosexual slurs. It's just, it, it has no place in society and people write it down, uh, on a porta potty wall for what I can't figure out. And one of them, actually, you take a picture of it. It's the title of your book, second tour, hope I don't die. Um, which is interesting. And I'm curious to know what sparked that, you know, to give you that name, but, Kind of tell me a little bit about this war graffiti photography first. Yeah, I mean that, you know that that idea came about <clears throat> quite, you know, literally like sitting there, you know, sitting there on the toilet and like looking around, and and lo and behold, you know, I was like, what's all this writing on the wall? And some of it was extremely interesting. I mean, it touched upon every level of kind of like, you know the selective kind of inner monologues of a huge variety of kind of personality types in the, and, and, and class and, and race in the military. And, you know, the, the, our, the military is really a melting pot of society. So to me, it was very interesting to see how those kind of inner musings like interacted anonymously on the, on the walls of these, these porta johns and, and in some of the, you know, the trailers and stuff. Uh, and, uh, and so I just started, Every time I was in New Base or or at or at uh, in Kuwait at Ali Al Salim, just going into every every stall and kind of obsessively photographing kind of everything I could find. That that's actually a huge series of pictures. Only a few on the website. It'll be a book one day because there's just so much uh, too much to be kind of captured on a website or as part of a book. And and you know what was interesting to me that now you know if we we look around the country and what's happened in the last few years and and we know that that these questions of, of, of kind of race, especially that had been largely kind of buried uh, uh, for a few decades following the civil rights movement are now very much uh, exposed again in society. And I hadn't realized that, you know, and I've been aware of that so, for some time. And a lot of that started looking at these walls and reading some of that stuff. And I couldn't believe people were still thinking those things and writing those things. Well, sure enough, I was naive as hell and a product of, of, of my own class and my own upbringing in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., you know, real kind of 
you know, enclave, liberal enclave in a lot of ways. But, uh, but, but what, what that experience proved to me was, was, was how much deeper also I needed to, to, to dig and, and question my own kind of perceptions of, of what the world was and what America, what America was and, 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 and think critically with what I was seeing and, but also honestly and emotionally, hopefully, and also simultaneously do a deep, deep dive into, into the history of this country, uh, uh, from, from many spectrums. And I've always tried to, you know, you can't separate yourself as an individual from, from beliefs and politics, but you can sure try and be thoughtful about understanding why people's beliefs exist as they do, you know, as long as they're thoughtfully constructed. And, and, you know, that's what I try to do with this work. And to this day, you know, I'm, I'm reading, you know, I'm reading the New York times every day and I'm reading Fox news every day too, because I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a curious person and I, I, and I, and I I feel a deep abiding kind of love for this country and, and I feel deeply troubled by this country too. And, and, and you can never learn enough to try and understand it. And, and still you're often left with more questions than answers. No, it's very well said. And, and I do want to talk about some of the pictures because I just, for those listening, they're probably wondering what we're talking about as far as what we see. And, you know, some of them have some lighthearted humor in it. And, and folks, we'll give you the website at the end, but we'll spare you the, the racist, sexist, uh, homosexual kind of, negativity and, and slurs that I mean look it's out there as you pointed out so so well unfortunately there are people who stink who still think these things in America today and um, you know I'd love to eradicate it all but obviously it's not something that it's going to happen anytime soon so I mean the pictures on the website you can go and see them yourself but it's it, the reason is it's troubling to me that there are people who put on a uniform who are supposed to hold a certain values and they're, they're not exhibiting those values by writing these things down and and so from that standpoint, it is very troubling to me. But just as an example, one photograph you have, it says, all you need is love. Well, underneath it, somebody crossed out the word love and wrote heroin. You know, I mean, that's kind of the way soldiers look at this thing. Then they get a little bit darker. Somebody wrote like a little poem that says, the path is broken. I, I have lost the space, the essence that is so decidedly me. My soul is suspended in darkness. I am falling. I am lost. And it's just kind of, you know, deep thoughts from individuals and, you know, two people commented on it. One said, kill yourself already. The other one says, this man needs to get laid. I mean, you know, like, that's <laughs> just, it, it's funny how people react in combat. You know, another one says, I shot an unarmed man in Afghanistan. Oops. <laughs> Above a toilet paper roll, yeah. you have a picture of one that says, reenlistment paper, LOL. Like, you, you can kind of see some of the, the humor as dark as it is there. But, you know, just give me some of the, the background on those photos and, and what your reaction was to them. Well, you know, but it's also, you know, I find it, it's complicated, my thoughts, because you can only wonder who these people are, because you'll never know. You can only kind of dream of what they might be thinking. You know, when I read something like, uh, uh, I shot an NR man in Afghanistan, oops, I wonder why is that guy writing that on the wall? And is he really so glib about it? Or is this like something he's grappling, some weird, something he's grappling with himself? And, and, you know, maybe it just happened. He's writing it on the wall that's almost, you know, try it on for size, how it feels to think that way. I mean, I've met, I've met, a, I know a lot of, you know, I stay in close touch with a lot of folks I met over at Embeds and, and since then. And, and I know quite a few people who, who know they've killed and a lot of them really grapple with, uh, with those memories. And in fact, you know, the folks I've met who in many ways have been most traumatized by their experiences, persistently traumatized by their experience, are the ones that, that have had to take someone's life. So, you know, I don't, when I read that, I don't necessarily think, oh, this guy's, uh, some sort of like sociopath I, I see someone who's probably you know probably in a lot of pain in a lot of ways too you know people and, and in the military especially you know i know there's sometimes a culture of trying to 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 
take these things lightly or pretend like they don't mean as much as they do, but you know, we're all human beings and, and we, we certainly have, you know, the power to be violent and, and, and kill with, with some ease, but, but, you know, uh, but, but it, but it doesn't come easy or the memory of it sure doesn't come easy for most people, you know, at least in my experience. And then finally, the second tour, Hope I Don't Die, you found on a graffiti wall and named it after your book. Uh, what was the impetus for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of summed up partly to me, just the the the, the fact that, you know, a, a very small part of society was having a lot of burden placed on them and fighting these wars again and again. I mean, second tour... It's after that was 2006 or whatever I took that, you know, I know people have done three, four, five, six tours, sometimes even more, you know, in the special forces. And, uh, and there's, I think there's a feeling, at least for me also, because I've been, you know, to conflict zones, you know, dozens of times at this point, uh, you know, there's this, you know, feeling not of, of resignation almost, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're going, sometimes you're ordered to do it. Sometimes you have to do it, you know, for complicated reasons of your own, like, uh, as a journalist, uh, Sometimes because you're assigned to do it, you know, and uh, sometimes because you just want to do it. And, and you know, you, there's that fear and that trepidation going into it and, and then some resignation, too. So, so you know, with, with that, when I read that, I saw sort of a bit of a, a reflection of what I was thinking myself at the time. You know, you, obviously people can hear that you're on the streets in New York right now. So the, the noise in the background is justified from that standpoint. But when you go back to doing regular civilian photography that is not of a military war nature. Do you find that it's easier or what's different about it? You know, it depends on the subject matter. So the book you're talking about, Second Tour, Hope I Don't Die, was sort of the first book I did about about these conflicts. And I did a second book called uh, Disco Night, September 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the more comprehensive book in many ways. And then this year I just had a third book come out that, that uh, called Buzzing at the Sill, which is which is looking really uh, exclusively at America, kind of America in the shadow of these wars in many ways, and and myself in the shadow of these wars, a bit more that, that are more primarily, you know, trying to look at the conflicts in a historical journalistic way. This one is looking historically, journalistically, but also, you know, kind of personally as well, you know, because there's there's only so much, you know, as an individual having and processing these experiences that you can get out through the media, and and, and books give the freedom to be kind of you know, express oneself, you know, as, as fully as possible without, without constraint. Um, but so, so that, that the, 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 that's the long answer to your question. I mean, within that, you know, I, I see a lot of what I photograph is kind of interconnected and, and my interest in these wars, you know, has, has expanded over time and kind of interest in America and American identity and American history more largely. So, so I, most of the assignments I try and go into, I, I try, and, and accept because I'm luckily in a privileged kind of professional situation at this point where I can, you know, I can turn down what I don't want to do and, and I can pitch stuff that gets then picked up by magazines. And, and I, and I, I'm trying to look at the society on kind of as holistically as possible on as many terms as possible to try and create a comprehensive body of work that really shows, you know, you know, who we've been and, and who we are and, and where we're going and, and what that all means. And these are big ideas and, and never can be fully answered. But, you know, I have hopefully a lifetime of work ahead of me to at least give it a give it a sporting try. Any little picadillos or quirks that you can remember from your time uh, based off of the individuals you serve with, Army versus Marines versus Navy versus Air Force, uh, any individuals in particular that you still keep in touch with and talk to and things of that nature? 
oh, I could probably only get in trouble trying to compare the services. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, 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 pa- I'll pass, I'll probably pass on that one. Uh, in terms of individuals though, uh, you know, a, a lot, I stay in touch with quite a few folks. Um, you know, there's, I sometimes would embed with units for months at a time. So, you know, you, you build, you build a bond inevitably, you know, it can be a little lonely, frankly, being, a being on your own as a photographer, uh, you know, without, you know, without your immediate colleagues around and, and, and in a, in a, totally different kind of structure than you're accustomed to. And, um, and, but almost with every unit, there'd be someone who, you know, I bonded with one reason or another. And, and, and most of them I stay in touch with to this day. And a lot of them are actually in my books and, and probably will continue to be because part of my interest is, is in following these, you know, the long tail of these wars over time. And that means decades, you know, uh, I, I wrote in my, my book that just came out, you know, about, growing up in this, this kind of handyman that, that, that was working in our house, who was a, a, a Vietnam veteran who'd been like utterly traumatized by experience there, his experience there. He ended up, you know, losing his mind and, and murdering someone and, and going to jail, you know? And so, you know, and, and he would babysit sometimes for me and my sister. He was a really sweet man and, and, and someone my parents liked a lot. And, and it was that early recognition of like, you know, the kind of, catastrophic violence in someone's mind that, you know, who's physically unscathed, but mentally kind of destroyed, you know, that, that was something I was sensitized to, you know, very, very young. Um, I'm getting a little off topic here, but I mean, one more thing worth mentioning about, you know, the folks I stay in touch with, you know, it's, it's, it's a range, you know, there are people that have, that have just done tremendously well and, and their experiences is serving in these conflicts kind of, sharpen their ideas about the world and themselves and they've gone on to amazing careers, uh, you know, and, and happy lives. And there are others who are, are very much stuck, you know, stuck in their memories and stuck in their experiences. And, and, and there are quite a few or somewhere in between, you know, and, and, and so it's all that complexity that I'm trying to capture that, you know, PTSD doesn't mean just one thing and serving in conflict doesn't mean just one thing. There are so many layers of emotions and, and a lot of it is really uh, about the individual and their experiences and, and who they were going into it and the kind of help they had coming out of it, you know? So, you know, these are, it's, it, we, we like to simplify things in, in our culture and most cultures just easier to live that way maybe. But, but, you know, I don't think that serves the memory of these things very well. So I'm trying to, trying to deal with it in, in complex terms that are more true to my experiences. No, but it, I mean, it's a reticent point from the stand. We talk about PTSD all the time in this podcast. I mean, it's, it's a big part of, a lot of the people that we talk to, it's a big part of their lives and, and how they get over it and how they deal with it and, 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 you know, creating awareness about it. So from that standpoint, you know, I, I respect your opinion. I wholeheartedly support it because I, I guess where I'm going next is that when you look at some of the photos you've taken of people in their afterlife of, of combat and, you know, whether it's a missing a leg or a hand or burns or whatever, do you find sometimes that photographing them in that state is harder than it was in a, combat environment yeah i mean it it it, it can be because you know combat and, and its immediate aftermath is so fast moving you don't have that much time to think and contemplate you know looking at the scars of kind of war both physically and internally in the in the long aftermath you know that's a much more kind of contemplative process and and can be more emotional as a result you know um because it's also you know it it, it it persists over, over so much time, you know, for certain individuals, you know, I have, I have a friend who's, uh, 
you know, uh, 11 years after he was injured, you know, I wonder if he'll ever be able to get his life back on track again. You know, it's, it's painful to see that. And, you know, in the beginning when, when I met, first met him, you know, I didn't have any of that skepticism and neither did he, you know, there was a lot of optimism about the future and that, and, and, and that seems to have disappeared over time. So, you know, I think it's important to, to look at these things over the long period of time and not just in the immediate aftermath of them happening because it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's too limited. You know, I, I believe in the public service role of journalism and in, in, in trying to tell deep and rich stories that resonate for history. And, and, and you can only do that by, by paying careful scrutiny over time and, and, and constantly questioning yourself and, and your own motives and, and, and your own biases. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a difficult process, a painful one sometimes, you know, no, there's I mean, a great responsibility with it as well, you know, so, and I don't want to get it wrong. No, and again, just a, a salient point and certainly a, a, a opinion I respect in the way you're doing it because it, it means a lot that you put that much care and thought into it. I mean, it's easy to take a photo that could go viral and change the course of history or change the course of a lot of different things. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're recording this on October 4th. We're, we are some almost 30 years removed now from uh, Black Hawk Down happening and, and the, the images of you know dead American soldiers being dragged through the streets in Somalia changed, you know, the way we, we do foreign policy forever. So it, it's easy to do that. And I think the fact that you put so much care into it, um, it is important. And it certainly is respectful of the work that we do as military members. Now, with that, there are two places people can find your photos. One, you have your own website, uh, Peter Van Achmel, and Achmel is A-G-T-M-A-E-L. PeterVanOchmel.net is the website where uh, a lot of your photos are. And you can see Disco Night, September 11th, and War Graffiti. Um, but then also magnumphotos.com is the other website uh, of which you're a part of, and, and you kind of have to search through the newsroom to find it, correct? Yeah, or you can go to the photographer's link, and uh, I'm on the drop-down page for the photographers. And, there you and go. If, anyone, if anyone's interested, I've done a lot of kind of long-form pieces from New York Times and New Yorker. Um, if you just Google my names with those publications attached, most of that stuff's available free of charge. Um you know, uh, but but I would say, you know, if, if your listeners are interested in 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 you know, because the, the the media always has its own spin on things, if they're interested in, in really the the kind of purest distillation of the perspective I've been offering here, the best the best thing to do is those books, and they're available on uh, Amazon and and through my website. Ideally, through my website, because more of the proceeds go to me. The Amazon takes a big cut, but you know, <laughs> I'm I'm just happy to get the word out there any way I can. Peter Van Ockmel, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.